Welcome to Hockey Night in New York, where Islanders hockey always reigns supreme. Whether you were raised at the barn in Uniondale or born in the stable at Belmont, Hockey Night in New York is your home for all things Isles. Now, let's drop the puck and get this party started. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Hockey Night in New York. Welcome to another special Islanders 50th anniversary edition of Hockey Night in New York. I'm here with Chris Botta. My name is Sean Cuthbert. And joining us tonight is broadcasting legend and former Islanders play-by-play man, Howie Rose. Very excited to have him on the program. But before we dive in, we want to send a big thanks out to our sponsors as we are proud to be presented by Blue Line Deli and Bagels. Visit their flagship location at 719 West Jericho Turnpike in Huntington. Brand new spot at 217 Carlton Avenue in East Islip. And of course, at the Isles' new home in Belmont. We also want to send a big thanks to Lost Farmer Brewing Company located at 63A 2nd Street in Mineola. Stop by the tap room to sample their great offerings like the Top Gun IPA, Blueberry Vice Sour, and of course, the Stable Shaker celebrating the stable known as UBS Arena. So we're going to take a quick break here, then the great Howie Rose will join us on the other side. Thanks a lot for tuning in to Hockey Night in New York. We'll be right back. Hey Islander fans, you already know Blue Line Deli and Bagels is the best place to get your game day meal, and now you can get it at the game. Blue Line Deli and Bagels is proud to be featured in the brand new UBS Arena for all Islander games and live events as an official partner of the New York Islanders. Blue Line is also moving beyond Belmont, opening its doors at 217 Carlton Avenue in East Islip. So whether it's at the Islanders' new home, East Islip, or at the flagship deli at 719 West Jericho Turnpike in Huntington, all three locations are eager to greet you with their familiar, friendly service and the best food around. So stop on in for delicious Bagel Boss bagels, hearty breakfast favorites, tasty hockey-themed heroes, freshly made smoothies, and so much more. And remember, you can always check out the menu and order online at bluelinedeli.com. Blue Line Deli and Bagels. Our goal is to make you a hero. Miss the days of mixtapes and arcades? Love the taste of a bold IPA or maybe an ice-cold lager? There's a place where all of those magical things come together. Lost Farmer Brewing Company. At 63A East 2nd Street in the heart of Mineola, Lost Farmer combines a love of the 80s and a passion for quality beer to create brews that can only be described as gnarly, radical, and totally tubular. The retro vibe of the tasting bar will amp up your nostalgia while the blend of both local and exotic ingredients amp up your taste buds. You're not your thing? Crack open a can of cider or sip a Chardonnay on the extended patio. Order up from the snack menu, you can even bring your own. If you're more of a homebody, pick up a growler to go or order online at lostfarmerbrewing.com. And for all of Long Island's hockey fans, Lost Farmer created the delicious Stable Shaker American Lager to celebrate the newly built UBS Arena at Belmont Park. Whether you're at the stable for a hockey game, concert, or a comedy show, you can find Stable Shaker by can and draft around the arena. So raise a cup to the next cup with Lost Farmer Brewery, the future of Long Island craft beer. Thanks for giving some time to our sponsors. Ready to talk more aisles? The train rolls on right here on Hockey Night in New York. And we're joined by the former television voice of the New York Islanders and still the radio voice of the New York Mets, and that's our friend Howie Rose. How are you, Howie? I'm well, Chris. How are you? Good to catch up. Same here. 
going to hit you with a real easy one. It's the 50th okay. anniversary. Of, no, it's not. It's a, It's the 50th anniversary of the Islanders. I feel like this is a question nobody ever gives a direct answer to because we want to be uh, respectful of all the Hall of Famers and we understand there was so many essential people involved. But I ask you, Howie Rose, who is the greatest player in the 50-year history of the New York Islanders? Without... A bit of hesitation, I say Brian Trottier. I, I know what Mike Bossy's in, impact was. I know what Dennis Potvin's impact was. I know they don't win four straight Stanley Cups without the goaltending of Billy Smith. But I would submit that Brian Trottier may be the greatest and yet underrated player in the history of the National Hockey League. He really had the misfortune of playing his prime after Wayne Gretzky had exploded in the NHL stardom. But I, I, I would be hard-pressed to find someone who could make a case for a better two-way player and, in a more subtle way, even a leader of championship teams, even though he wasn't a captain, in the history of the National Hockey League than Brian Trotschett. Is it is it clear-cut? So to me, like, Dennis is two. But what is that for you? Is is it then? Is it the other three with Smitty? I, I, we get it. Everybody's the, those four <laughs> is irreplaceable. But is there a clear cut two for you? That's a better question than who's number one. To be honest with you, because you could make such a strong case for any of the other three. But I subscribe to the tenet that with any multiple choice question, you go with your very very first impulse. And to me, that first impulse would be Dennis Potvin. And a lot of it is chronological because, you know, Dennis not only uh, was the first of the Islanders superstars, apart from Billy Smith, of course, who was there from the very beginning, but really didn't blossom until much later. But, but Dennis was the first of that pantheon of greats who, you know, basically had to be the centerpiece. From the moment he was drafted, he was under enormous pressure. And whether you think that playing on Long Island was a much easier and a lesser microscope to play under than had he been in the big city with the Rangers or certainly the Montreal Canadiens or, or, or you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, you know, Dennis Potvin from the very beginning was under very, very close scrutiny because – you know, he had to answer the questions, are you the next Bobby Orr? Are you the second coming of Bobby Orr? And from the very beginning, all Dennis ever said was, I just want to be the first Dennis Pot fan. And that was plenty good enough. Not everybody knows this, even still grasps this to this day, but you were around that team a lot in the 70s as a young <laughs> reporter. You were close with Al Arby. You had a fun relationship with him for a long, long time. And you saw that team develop. Could mm -hmm. you... It, 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 there's really no comparison thinking about a team that, that took eight years to get to the Cup. But when you think of those early, mid-70s teams, could you see what was building? And did you think back then that this would end with at least one championship? It didn't take long, Chris, to see that they were building something special. But you couldn't have forecast the volume of talent that, largely at the suggestion of Jimmy Devolano, would make its way into the Islander organization on an annual basis for about the first five or six years of their existence. You know, they got Brian Trache and Clark Gillies in the same draft. Imagine that. I mean, they got, but think about that for a minute. They got Brian Trache and Clark Gillies in the same draft. 
And, you know, along the way, there were the lesser uh, heralded players, uh, you know, whether they were uh, uh, the Stefan Pearson or um, certainly the Sutter brothers. And, and I mean, yeah, you know, look, Nystrom was there from the very beginning and Billy Harris was the very first draft choice. And, you know, he had an impact, too, even though they sort of sacrificed him to, to do what ended up, you know, meant creating a dynasty. But they just didn't make many mistakes. I mean, nobody's perfect, but you can't possibly do a better job of building an organization from the ground floor, from its inception, without the you know benefit of free agency and reeling in all the big fish you want or having you know the, the much different pool to choose from the way the Vegas Golden Knights did. Um, you, ju- you just can't come closer to perfection than than what Bill Torrey and, and Jimmy Devolano did to build that franchise. We know about the heartbreaking losses along the way, especially Lanny McDonald's overtime goal. But how much did that loss in 79 to the Rangers actually then lead to the dynasty, the clinching of the first one and, and the three to follow? Because it, it also feels like, was that going to be very much the last run before they acquired Butchie Goring? Like, was that, I mean, there had to, there was going to be a time where they would eventually have to say, okay, we might need to start breaking this up. So what did that all mean, 79 into 80? Well, you have to understand what the Islanders were up to until, I think the date was March 9th or 10th. You'd know it better than me, but I I think it was one of those dates when the trade was made to, to bring Butchie to the island. But for people who don't remember, they were floundering. You know, they were just a few games over 500 when 500 really was 500, <laughs> um, you know, back in, um, in early 1980. And, um, and there was real thought that they might have already played their best hand, you know. Uh, no one could have envisioned what happened as the result of the Goring trade because they didn't lose a game the rest of that regular season. I think it was something like 8-0-4 down the stretch and then into the Stanley Cup playoffs. But, you know, one of, one of the many wonderful memories I have of 21 years broadcasting the Islander games on television were those charter flights where I'd sit next to Butch Goring on the plane and Chris, we had those flight attendants well-trained. There'd be a full (laughs) bottle of wine in the seat pocket before Butchie and I sat down. It was empty by the time we landed. Um, Sometimes even if we were just coming home from Buffalo, but the stories that he told were, were, you know, not only, you know, fun to hear and amusing in their own right, but they were very instructive, too. And, and Butchie, and he's told this story publicly, but it, it sounded great on the plane after a couple of couple of uh, <laughs> sips, sips of grape juice. I should also point uh, out you guys had car service home for any fans. Yes, absolutely. Unlike the PR guy, you had car service. You know what? You haven't lost your fastball. I'm proud of you. Thanks. Um, you know, he tells the story of being in that locker room in Los Angeles when the Islanders and Kings were in what we called the preliminary round, the first round of the playoffs in 1980 before Boston and before Buffalo. And of course, Philadelphia. And if memory serves, they had split the first two games and they were down a goal or two going to the third period in Los Angeles. And and had they lost that game, that would have put them behind two games to one in a best of five series. 
And Butchie tells the story of, of looking around that room and he saw expressions on their faces that belied what was to come. You know, he, he looked at them and said, this is not a team that thinks it's, it, it can win. This is a team that looks like they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And, you know, I can't remember now if it, if it was um, Gillies or Nystrom who Butch kind of enlisted. But, you know, he took it upon himself with the help of one or two of those lieutenants to verbalize to the team that they don't know or didn't know how good they really were. And, and Butch's perspective was unique because it was coming from effectively the outside. You know, at that point, he played the 12 regular season and first two playoff games. So he played just 14 games with that group. And he's looking at them going, man, you guys are great. You don't even realize it. And and somehow that was verbalized in that room before they went out for the third period and they came back to win that game and, and won the series. And, you know, the rest of the story. So, um, you know, the the acquisition of Butch Goring was so obviously vital based on the numbers he put up and what happened. But I think his perspective was something that was as important as his talent. And it was demonstrated with uh, the events of that third game in Los Angeles in 1980. Awesome stuff. Hey, Howie, Sean here. I wanted hey, to start, Hey, I wanted to start by saying how spoiled are New York Islander fans going from Jiggs McDonald to yourself and now Brendan Burke taking the baton. You did an outstanding job during the play-by-play. It was an absolute pleasure having the booth while you were. And with that said, I wanted to ask you if there was any particular game or moment that you have in mind when you look back, there was obviously some highs and some lows with the New York Islanders while you were there, but is there anything that sticks out to you while you were there in the broadcast booth calling those Islander games? I'll give you two things. One is personal and one is more a reflection of the team. Let me work from the team out. Um, And and, and frankly, they came in the same season, but the 2001-2002 season was a gift. That was one of my favorite years in over 30 years of broadcasting in the National Hockey League for a lot of reasons. And I'll start on September 11th of that year. It was just such a a devastating event. Still is, you know, the wounds are still open all these years later. But I just remember, and it wasn't until Mike Piazza hit his famous home run 10 days later that I understood why baseball had to come back. But on September 11th, I would have been very happy if they had just canceled the rest of the baseball season. And at that point, given me the time to get ready to have a fresh start into a new season with the Islanders, because that was the summer, the summer of 01, when basically Charles Wong, may he rest in peace, went all in. And he made several big-time acquisitions, starting with Mike Pekka and Alexi Yashin and one of the most underrated players in team history, Adrian Coyne. Um, and others, Chris Osgood in the in the um, waiver draft. But, you know, that that season was the first one since I'd been with the Islanders beginning in the 95-96 season when they were a real, not only NHL team, but a, a contending NHL team. I mean, you know, Chris knows it was it was a joke pretty much before that for reasons that we don't need to get into. But um, because it would take too long, frankly, <laughs> right. but um, 
But 0102 was a reawakening. It was a renaissance. It was wonderful. Every game, every game was great. And then you get into that playoff series with Toronto. It was dirty. It was filthy. It was vicious. It was wonderful. Except they came up one game short. Um, but the personal part of it was early in that season. Um, Brian Trache's number was at long last going to be retired by the Islanders. And, you know, if you go back to the first few years I was with the Islanders, it was an uneasy alliance because, mm. you know, here I was coming from the Rangers. They had only won the Stanley Cup a year and change before I got to the island. And then everything was falling apart with the Islanders. They changed the logo. They go to the fishermen <laughs> jerseys and whoever would have believed back then that they would be brought back a couple right. of decades later as some kind of beloved relic. You talk <laughs> about revisionist history, uh, you know, in the name of a buck, but that's a whole, that's a whole yeah, other a break story. in the action is Howie Rose goes through the Islanders. We didn't start the fire by Billy Joel. <laughs> before, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. But um, anyway, you know, it was a difficult transition for me. The fans were slow to come around. And, and, and I, I know that Islander management, whenever they had special events and brought the championship teams back, they didn't want me emceeing that for a few reasons, not the least of which was the stuff I might get thrown at me. But, you know, I wasn't of that era of Islander hockey. That was clearly for Barry Landers and later Jiggs McDonald to take over. But Brian was different because I got to know Brian um, – Back in the summer of 1979, when I had been working at WHN Radio doing morning sports, we were bringing in some local athletes to be disc jockeys, morning guest disc jockeys. It was a country music station. And as you guys probably know, Brian was quite the country music fan and performer. So, you know, I Brian agreed to come in that one morning in uh, the summer of 1979. And I'm telling you, he was like a little kid in a candy store. You know, he just was in awe of everything. And, you know, not only about the specifics of the music we were playing, but he just really seemed to dig being at a radio station. So, you know, even though I'd known him before that somewhat, we really hit it off from that point on. And I used to get teased about how, you know, he seemed to treat me better and give me better interviews than he did a lot of the other press but you know it's one of those things when you're in the business long enough you create certain bonds and and brian was one that that i bonded with so they allowed i, I as soon as i heard they were retiring brian's number i think i might have gone to chris first maybe you remember this yeah. chris i said look uh I said, it's time. I said, I've been here long enough. Brian is a guy I consider a friend. It would mean a lot to me to emcee this. Um, and all I remember Chris saying was, yeah, great. Let me run it past Brian. If he's cool with it, then it's a go. And it was. And I was received very warmly, which was like, you know, to me, um, the first validation that I felt as an Islander broadcaster, the day went beautifully. Brian was typically humble and, and honored by it. And it was just, you know, again, another event and what was a wonderful season. It's too bad they didn't go further than that first round, but I still, when I think of my time with the Islanders, think about that season first. Fantastic, Howie. And, and to follow up, uh, kind of a, a fitting way to go out, I suppose, when you ended your career uh, broadcast, at least for the for the New York Islanders, when they win that first round against the Florida Panthers. It had been quite a long time, and you get to call that game with John Tavares scoring the overtime winning goal. Was that a bittersweet moment for you, uh, the way uh, it ended for you? Obviously, great that they won their first round in a long time, but also that was the end of uh, you calling the games for the Isles. Very much so. It was bittersweet. I was 95% certain 
that that was my last game. But I allowed the 5% to play in over the ensuing couple of weeks because I, I wanted to get away from it for a couple of weeks and make sure that I was making the right decision. Um, but I kind of knew when I called that goal that, um, that that'd be it. Wow. And, I mean, you know, the fact that it turned out to be the last hockey call I've made to this point and probably forever um, gives me a real satisfying feeling because it was like the the last act of a desperate man, I suppose, (laughs) you know, to finally have that moment with the Islanders. Because remember, I've been there since 1995. We're talking about 2016. That was the first playoff series they'd won during my tenure. So to be able to make that call, um, and John was another guy who I was very fond of, uh, John Tavares, who suddenly has become John Tavares over the years, but that's a a whole different story. Um, I, I was just so proud and pleased to make that call, but you hit the absolute right word. It was bittersweet because, you know, I knew that was pretty much it for me. Howie, if not all time in your lifetime, you look at, and you look a lot younger than you happen to be. If you don't mind me saying that's a compliment. <laughs> Everybody uh, is nowadays. Where does Al Arbor, among, oh among the coaches in New York, New Jersey, history, MLB, NBA, NHL, NFL, where does Al Arbor rank? Professionally, before I even talk about him personally. Mm-hmm. Um, professionally, Al Arbor is Red Holzman times two. Uh, he's Bill Parcells times two. He's any great manager or head coach in the history of New York professionally or collegiately. And I know sometimes I hate saying this because it it sounds like I'm sort of, I don't mean to, you know, diminish or, or minimize, you know, who the Islanders are and what they mean to people in this market. But we know that, that, that over the years, you know, they've not necessarily received the amount of, of coverage. And even during the dynasty years, um, Look, I mean, we all know, had, had had the Islanders been playing in Midtown Manhattan and won four in a row, they'd be canonized to an extent that we almost wouldn't be able to articulate. But what they did on Long Island was special because it was on Long Island, because it was what I consider the closest thing that this market has ever had to the Brooklyn Dodgers, because, you know, you could you could go to virtually any mall on Long Island and and run into an Islander player or two during the hockey season. You could, you know, go to parent teachers night and check in on, on one of your child's classes and an Islander player could be sitting there getting ready to speak to the teachers too. You know, they lived in a finite area, which is far different from that of virtually every other team in this market. Um, so if you look at it through that lens, then, you know, Al Arbor is huge. If you look at him, you know, a little bit more objectively in terms of uh, if, if every team in this market was on equal footing, then they'd be talking about all Al Arbor the way they did Casey Stengel or John McGraw way back at the baseball days. Or, as I mentioned, Bill Parcells. Or, I mean, he's the Vince Lombardi of the Islanders, right? Yeah. He's the Vince yeah. Lombardi of hockey. I mean, you, you know, he's one of the great people I've ever gotten to know, never mind the greatest hockey coach I've ever been around. 
pretend you're so Sean mentioned the incredible fortune that us as fans have had to go from Jigs to you to Brendan. Pretend you Thank are you pretend you are not Howie Rose for the next two minutes or so. <laughs> pretend you are, be the first time. Pretend you are <laughs> teaching a class at uh, Columbia or Syracuse or Fordham or a broadcasting school. Austria. And and tell me what so all three of you are great but it, it seems to me you're great in different ways so i would ask you what is it as television hockey announcers only television which i know you said stealing money compared to doing radio you said that on my show um <laughs> said, uh, i remember everything you say um what is the difference in your styles and what would you say brendan jiggs and this fellow rose did or do best well, I think if I had to put the three of us in one group about what we did best, I think we cared. We cared about our craft. We cared about the artistry within that craft because it's very much an art. And I think a lot of that also involves respecting your audience and knowing who they are and you know, knowing that it's a loyal, passionate fan base and you have to speak to them intelligently. And you know that the overwhelming percentage of your viewers are rooting for the Islanders. And you play to that. But you have to do it fairly. Um, I, I, I think we all did that and do that. Um, apart from that, as far as styles go. Yeah, how are you different? You know, Jigs, how are we different? That's a great question. Jigs has the um, advantage of having grown up in Canada, watching the 16 league and probably living and breathing the sport in a way that was somewhat different, certainly from the way I absorbed it, maybe a little less so for Brendan because Brendan actually grew up playing the game, playing ice hockey. I mean, I played roller hockey in Bayside, Queens, but I didn't know what I was doing. I just had a stick in my hand and, you know, and then tried to poke the puck behind the goaltender. Um, and it didn't happen very often, but, but I had fun doing it. Um, I think they, meaning Jigs and Brendan, probably had a little bit deeper fundamental grasp of the X's and O's of the game than I did and do. Um, and, then, and that's probably a function of them having been more intimately involved with it to an extent than I was, even though my fandom from age 12 was very deep and very passionate. And, um, and I just, from the moment I, I kind of fell in love with hockey, it was head over heels. So that was at age 12. And, you know, I'd been a baseball fan for about six years before that, five, six years before that. And I wore hockey as a badge of honor because it wasn't the mainstream sport. Like certainly when I was growing up in the 60s, that baseball, football, and basketball were. So I was proud to be a hockey fan because it made me feel a little different, almost a little special. But how did that translate stylistically? Somebody's got to answer that for me about myself because I've never really understood my own style because I think I must be schizophrenic to some extent. <laughs> I because I, you know, I never know who's showing up in the booth. And this goes for baseball, too. You know, some nights I'm, I'm kind of um, more serious than others. Some nights I'm very chatty. Other nights I'm a little more prone to um, minimalization as far as 
words are concerned, this night apparently is not one of them. Um, but, um, I, I don't know. I need somebody else. To I, kind I of thought where you, style. yeah, I thought where you excelled besides the play-by-play style was utilizing your color commentator. Uh, from Joe to, yeah. to, to Billy to, yeah. to Butchie to everybody uh, that you worked with, like you would ask them questions at the right time too, right? Now, you know, but I, I thought you perhaps because, like you said, Brandon, unlike Brandon and Jigs, it wasn't you didn't have some of that knowledge. You would then use it to your advantage and go to your analysts. Well, for one thing, I, I appreciate that, and I think there is a lot of truth to it from the standpoint of recognizing the precious commodity that they were um, every one of the analysts I worked with. And it also demanded that I accept something that I'm part of the first generation of broadcasters that needed to accept that on television, the analyst is the star you know, the play-by-play guy historically has has kind of been the marquee name on the billboard, but that's not the way it is in sports television. The analyst is the guy who really floats the boat. And that means not only digging into replays and breaking down a play, but under the best of circumstances, being practically prescient and not so much first guessing from a strategic standpoint, but watching the game unfold, absorbing the trends of the game and using those trends to suggest that something might happen as the result of those trends. No one that I've worked with has done that better than Joe Micheletti. Um, Joe was just unbelievable that way. I mean, he could, he could, he could sense things happening before they actually happened. And I'd be a fool not to lean on that and, and take advantage of everything he had to offer. But, you know, whether it was Ed Westfall or um, Joe or, or Billy Jaffe, who brought a different skill set, having not played in the NHL, but obviously knowing the game backwards and forwards. And, you know, again, my annual campaign, he should be some team's analyst in the NHL, but, you know, we'll get back on that soapbox at some <laughs> other point. And, you know, straight through to Butchie, who I'm so I'm so proud of Butch to see, you know, how far he's come over the years. And all of a sudden now you look back and Butch has been doing this since it's about 12, 13 years now. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know that people would have heard Butch that very first year and say, yeah, he'll be there 10, 12, 15 years, but, but he deserves to be where he is now. I mean, he's a beloved Islander and, um, and and so I, I drew from every one of them and leaned on every one of them and, and cherished working with every one of them. Awesome stuff, Howie. And and this is sort of inspired from from that previous question. Now, obviously, you have a very famous call from 1994 that we we won't talk about here. But <laughs> is there any? I, you know what? Can I interrupt for a second? A- absolutely. I mean, have at it. Only because I've I've I get it now. <laughs> I get it more so than I ever did before. But I just had trouble early on. Grant, why does that make Islander fans so upset? <laughs> I mean, they weren't involved in it. Well, as I got a little more familiar internally with the culture, yeah, I guess they were very much involved with it. But um, I, I, you know, I still kind of wear that proudly. And, and um, you should. I'm sure there. I'm sure. If I believe it was me, a I'm, bad I'm, call. It wouldn't bother. Us, right? No. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I get a kick out of the fact, and I mean, I really mean this. I really do enjoy the fact 
that whatever the percentage of Islanders fans who never did or will accept me mm-hmm. as their broadcaster, however much they they reflect on that call, mm-hmm. I think it's great. I think that their loyalty is so deep and their passion so strong that to accept anything that ever had anything to do with their absolute hated arch enemy is is um, an estimate of that. So you know what? <laughs> Go for it, man. Hate all you want. It's cool. <laughs> Love it. So with that in mind, is there any one call or moment that maybe you made calling the New York Islanders where that you were proud of or you were just like, man, I nailed that one? Like, was there any one moment or call where you were like, yeah, that was that was a great one to be a part of? It's a great question because I go back to my feelings about radio as opposed to television. In radio, you're creating images, you know, you're taking this blank canvas right. and painting word pictures that that create those images. You don't do that in television. You just punctuate. So I've never felt that I've made great calls on television. Um, you know, people think back to the Piazza home run that I mentioned earlier on September 21st, 2001, they said, well, Howie, that's one of your most memorable calls or whatever, but I don't even remember it as much of a call except for this one has a chance, even though it was going 450 (laughs) feet. There's a long story behind that that I won't get into now that I've told before, but um, on television, I'll tell you the call that and this may surprise you a little bit because it was an anticlimactic call. Okay. Um, it wasn't Sean Bates' penalty shot. And again, mm. the call, what did I say? Bates in on goal, he shoots, he scores. Right. I think the best part of that call to me was the punctuation. Was after I let the crowd carry it for a few seconds. And then this probably makes it my favorite call uh, of a big moment in Islander history because I could understand where fans would adopt it. Um, after the fact, after the goal and after the crowd had started to quiet down, I remember saying for a franchise that has seen so many memorable postseason moments, you've just seen one of the most memorable or words to that effect. Um, I, I really like that. I like punctuating that call that way. But the call that gave me personally um, goosebumps a little bit. And if you listen real closely, you might even hear my voice begin to break a little bit. Wow. It was anticlimactic because I think it was just a center ice face-off with a couple of seconds to go. Um, but when they finally clinched a playoff spot against the Washington Capitals, and they tried very hard to blow that game. They were up <laughs> something like five or six to one, it was if like I remember. Five one, and went all the way to five four. I was done. Yeah, it went exactly. <laughs> you weren't the only one, brother, um, because again, that was that wonderful season I I referenced earlier, and. And I think I said, at long last, the Islanders will play for the Stanley Cup. And if you go back and listen real carefully to that, you might hear my voice crack once or twice. It was extremely emotional for me because now I felt like, well, this is this is what I came here for. You know, I I covered the Stanley Cup teams. I was, you know, part of the environment. Um, all those nights at Dr. G's after big games and, you know, just sort of just enjoying the atmosphere on that level before I had anything to do with the Islanders professionally. 
um, just having the chance to know that I was going to call Islander playoff games and that this was the culmination of, you know, for me, I think it was my seventh year and it was the first year they'd gone to the playoffs. It was extremely special. And just making the call as that last second or two ticked off the clock, that, that's one that, that meant as much to me as any. Howie, that's, that's fantastic. And the last one I'll sneak in here real quick. Who was the most exciting New York Islander that you called? You know, the first guy that just came to my mind, well, I don't know that I'd call him the most exciting, but, you know, I mean, Ziggy Palfi was a trip. Um, you know, I'll never forget him walking off the ice after a morning skate. I was behind him. He was heading towards the room, and he goes, man, this back checking is killing me. <laughs> you know, he, he, threw my, in, he threw in an adverb or adjective or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leaping back yeah. checking. <laughs> I, I trust this is a family show. I work in a clean room. Um, I mean, Ziggy was exciting in his own way. Um, John, you know, John Tavares, I call him Tavares now because that's what they call him <laughs> on the other broadcast, but he told us it was Tavares. So I don't know what the hell happened there. Um, I just he said a few that, things that you know, weren't that being true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole other story. But John was, he was understated in the excitement of watching a young player achieve much of what was projected for him. Um, the most exciting play you're talking about that I broadcast in mm -hmm. my years with the Islanders. Oh boy. I, I, you it, know it was what? probably, it was probably a goalie who you just didn't know if he could ever stop the puck. He kept, <laughs> kept made things exciting, right? Ricky. <laughs> Ricky, actually, Ricky, I, I didn't mean him, but that's actually Ricky would be a great answer because he was he, he was, was something exciting. to watch. Right. Yes, but I, really Ricky, exciting. if you hear this, I didn't. I actually wasn't. I wasn't thinking of you. Um, but <laughs> but in terms of exciting, he he was exciting. He was fun to watch, and 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 the opposite too. Yes. Well, I, you know what? I'm again. I'm I'm going to go back to my tenant and lean on the first guy for me. Even though they were terrible teams, was Ziggy Poff because yeah. when he was All on right. the ice, big. Big things could happen. Did you have somebody else in mind for those years? No, made a great, great choice. And he, yeah. he, it's unbelievable. Sure. You look at his numbers compared to the rest of the team that he was on. It's just spectacular. You know, I could have answered too, even though he wasn't a player. It was Mike Milbury. I mean, there was, ah, always yes. there was always something going on with Mike. A lot of fun. Uh, well, how and he was. Uh, yeah, that's a show in itself, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, Howie, we cannot thank you enough for all your time tonight. Absolutely fantastic stuff. It was, was a pleasure to have you on the show. So uh, please enjoy the rest of your night. Thanks so much. Well, my pleasure. I love looking back on those years. And uh, and I miss the Islander fans, and I miss the gig. So be well, everyone. It's 50th anniversary, and you're every bit as big a part of it, Howie. So thank you. Thanks for your friendship, and, and thanks for doing this. My pleasure, guys. Be well. Take, Take care. care. That was the great... Howie Rose, fantastic spot from Howie. Awesome stuff, Chris. Yeah, oh, he's he's great. He he, this job meant a lot to him. Um, I could, it's a we could do these, uh, you know, wrap up shows right after sure. uh, talking. So many stories I could tell you about him. He, right, he he bled for this team. He did so much. He went through uh, a lot, um, crazy times because he was there for. Uh, the ownership changes and everything else, uh, and he just somehow he also listen. He was honest for a play-by-play -play announcer. He would say things about yeah. jerseys and things like yeah. that that the fans were thinking, and you just would never hear that now. And I don't mean he about had, Brendan Burke. He he said he says things that announcers for any team anywhere, home team announcers don't do not say anymore. 
He had a lot of moments where he was speaking for the fans. I remember that, and I thought it was great. And and yeah, get over the '94 call and all well, that. I mean, right, yeah. <laughs> on the thing, like he's, he'll talk about not liking a Mets jersey. Like they have different right, colors right. and all like that. Mm-hmm. And part of me just thinking, you know, Steve Cohen's going to hear this, and you know, but he he when he feels strongly about something, he'll 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 go there. Yeah, and he was just an outstanding play-by-play man. And I have to say. When the news came out that that he was out, I said, "How the hell are they going to replace this guy?" Mm-hmm. I was like, "How are they going to manage that?" I was like, "Whoever comes in has some gigantic shoes to fill." And all the credit in the world to Brendan Burt because this, I didn't see this coming at all. But he's done a fantastic job since he's jumped in as well. So again, the Islander fans have been super spoiled with their broadcasts going back to Jigsy. I agree because there have been other new announcers in the league, home team announcers, and you get to hear them whether it be on an ESPN Plus or an NHL package. Uh, they're all good yeah uh there isn't any that i would say aren't they good but some of them are you know well they're good some are better than others and brendan is absolutely a cut above so we've been fortunate uh thank howie for his time and really looking forward to doing a bunch more of these 50th anniversary interviews yes no question about it so folks want to thank you once again so much for tuning in to a great special edition of hockey night new york here with chris bott and myself sean cuthbert so with that we're going to wrap it up. So big thanks to Blue Line Deli and Bagels located at 719 West Jericho Turnpike in Huntington, 217 Carlton Avenue in East Islip and UBS Arena Belmont. Check out the menu at bluelinedeli.com. And a big, big thanks to Lost Farmer Brewing Company located at 63A 2nd Street in Mineola. Check out their website, lostfarmerbrewing.com for all their great selections. So folks, once again, thank you so much. You can follow Chris on Twitter at NHL. You can follow myself at Shawnee Hockey. You can follow Christian Arnold at C underscore Arnold 01. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Hockey Night NY for Chris Botta. My name is Sean Cuthbert. We've been Hockey Night New York. We will see you next time.